I tell people, hey, I guarantee we're not going to get everything right, uh, but we're always going to strive to to fix our mistakes quickly and to honor and respect the partnership that we have between our companies. Because most of our dealers are, you know, just a, a husband and a wife running a business. And I really respect that small business ownership mindset, that entrepreneurship. And it's a different set of rules that they're living by in terms of cash flow, keeping their employees housed and fed. And I, um, you know, we treat that with great respect and, and in doing so we really, I know for me, I strive to understand what's really happening in the marketplace. Um, you know, before I tell them what they should be understanding, if that makes sense. We're going to do our best to get new thinking out there. There's going to be discussions centered around growth and new thinking. That's where those great ideas come from. Exploring them together. Nuggets that you can go back and put into your dealership that'll help you make more money. This is GarageCast. Podcast episode number 27. My name is Tony Gonzalez. On the line with me right now, I have Sam Dantzler. Sam, how are you? Good morning, sir. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Uh, it's a beautiful morning up here in Colorado, up in uh, the, the mountains. Life is good. There's some wildfires going on, so it's a little hazy outside, but everything else seems to be going pretty, pretty great. You know, Amy was telling me yesterday, it's crazy. We're, we're getting ready to go take a little vacation next week, um, and then we come back and June's already gone. What happened? <laughs> what what happened is we went to California. That's what we happened. Yeah, that was that was super fun. Uh, got to ride the the live wire out there with Robert Patrick interview. That was one of my better days ever. You know, every time I think of California, I think about the California bear. Right? They got the bear on the flag and the logos and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. They didn't have the bear that I had in my yard the other day, did they? <laughs> the big old brown bear. That thing was as big as a Volkswagen. I kid you not. Rolled right through my yard, just like nothing. I'm just rolling through your yard. You want to do something about it? Yeah, it's crazy, man. You know, we we uh, we went from being indoors, trapped, no school, coveting our brains out, right? And then the country gets let loose for summertime. And like I said, we're already like, wow. So so June's gone. Now we're <laughs> we got like a month and a half and. My kids will be going back to school. The school may not open. We will drop them off there every morning and pick them up at four. It's their own devices come in at that point. You know what I mean? I do. Yes. I've already put in a call to uh, social services just to preempt that. They, they know it's coming. <laughs> Today's going to be a super cool show, man. You met our guest uh, a while back through Friends of Friends and formed a pretty cool relationship. So why don't you intro uh, our buddy Ross and, and let's get going. Yeah, let's do this. Ross Atherton, who is the VP general manager on the consumer side for Club Car. Uh, I met Ross back in uh, actually early this year when we still could travel. We were in Augusta, Georgia for their dealer show. Uh, mutual friend of ours, Tony, Amanda Suggs. Amanda yep. was a longtime friend, a client. She's got a long history with Polaris. Uh, she ended up at Club Car and had me come down. Somehow she convinced them to let me give the opening keynote to their event uh so i went down there and i met ross there and aside from the fact that he's a florida gator graduate he's a pretty stout dude um but i'm gonna let him give his own intro so ross are you with us i am sam hey man tony how you doing great man thanks good. for coming on the show yeah yeah good to be here thanks and sam you you sell yourself short man you killed it uh as a keynote speaker at our conference you were definitely the highlight of the uh entire week so yeah thanks well, for coming out to do that, that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you. Way and, more and entertaining than like the days of PowerPoint, days of, of long PowerPoints. I don't do well with PowerPoint. I do well with pictures. <laughs> I'm a simple monkey. I like pictures. Um, so, so Ross, for, for the folks out there listening in the world, how did you get where you are? You know, give yourself a good intro. Start back. Uh, you know, Sam obviously alluded to the fact you're a Gator. So you went to uh, university. Are you from Florida? Yeah, yeah, I grew up in Florida as a kid, went to University of Florida uh, right out of high school, spent a couple of years kind of goofing around and got asked by the dean and, and some other members of the faculty to uh, take a break for a while. So I, I left and went out to California and hung out and uh, worked as a you know, dishwasher, busboy, and ended up becoming a bartender out in Newport Beach. 
Um, long story short, in that time, um, if you're going way, way back, I spent a summer selling books door to door, 100%, 100% commission sales job. And that's kind of like what was the formation of my, I think, commercial mindset and how I got to where I am today because it really taught me the value of like hard work and spending my time wisely because that job, I didn't make a penny unless I sold something. And if you ever try to sell something to somebody who's in their house while they're eating dinner, uh, you'll know it's probably the most difficult thing in the world to do. Um, and I actually had success at it. So, hey, you guys, Sam, you'll appreciate this. I, I realized I had to get back into school and University of Florida was nice and decided to let me back in. So uh, back then I had a Yamaha Virago and I drove nice. that thing from Newport nice. Beach all the way, I, w I took like the most circuitous route I could. I had a couple thousand bucks to burn. So I went up to San Francisco, across the northern U.S., dipped into Canada, New York City, all the way down to Key West, and then ended up rambling back to Gainesville just in time for classes to start. And then ended up finishing school and getting a job with Train, uh, which is a big uh, commercial HVAC uh, manufacturer and service provider. And then from there, I grew a 20-year career uh, progressively just moving through sales and sales management roles, ultimately into like general management roles. About 2014, uh, one of the guys I'd worked with in train uh, moved over to uh, one of the uh, industrial businesses within Ingersoll Rand. It's like an oil and gas uh, business that was um, global in nature. He brought me over as a global sales leader, which was really cool. Big, big risk because all I really knew was selling in the Southeast. So... Uh, that that kind of opened the door for me to club car and gets me to where I am today. We um, I did that job in oil and gas for about three years. Um, I, I was uh, probably the reason the oil oil market crashed from 2014 to 2017. I took it from 120 a barrel down to like 25 a barrel. It was, <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty rugged, but but we actually had success. We gained share during that period and made some good strategic moves. So that got me the opportunity to uh, move over to club car and run this startup business. And I think that's really the main topic we'll talk about today. But it's uh, this business built on the Onward product, which is um, a product that's taking Club Car out of its legacy golf uh, focus and into more of a neighborhood focus. Because what we're seeing is there is this tremendous attractive market that's growing in the U.S. where people use golf cars to get around their neighborhoods. Um, they may use them to play golf. A lot of our customers do. But there is a very, very large segment of our population who wants to use golf cars as an alternative to their conventional automobile. So we knew that was a place we could win with some differentiated features, cool accessories, uh, better powertrain solutions. So we put together uh, with a team a really good product and uh, launched that back in 2017. And, and just every year, we've been more than doubling the business since then. And really went from zero to hero. We were like 0% market share. And now we're uh, the leader in the industry. So we really King killed Kongs. it. Yeah. So one thing I want to talk about really quick that, that just stuck out to me. And, and Ross, you and I have had a couple of conversations recently. And, and we're, we're of the same generation. So we're Gen Xers. But door-to-door -door sales, the, the concept of door. So, so that's gone. It doesn't exist anymore, right? And, and you, it's so funny. I'll, in some of my trainings, I'll be like, you know, you, when, when we used to sell encyclopedias and, and half the room will look back at me and go, A, what's an encyclopedia? <laughs> and, and B, you used to sell these books into houses, right? It's, d dude, that story in and of itself is, is amazing to me. And so that had to be brutal, right? Selling door to door. I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on that one, Tony. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> It's amazing. I'll, um, I'll tell that story when I'm giving a speech, you know, an external speech, uh, external audience that is. And, and afterwards, one or two people, big audience, guaranteed one or two people come up and say, hey, man, did you work for Southwestern Publishing? I'll be like, yeah. They're like, yeah, I sold books too. And 99.9% .9 of the people I met who went through that kind of testing and proving ground, that, that cauldron, if you will, are pretty successful because – it's hard, man, but I, it still exists. Southwestern's still out there. And, and that, I mean, just a quick sidebar, the, the way you start is the last, they give you a week of training. You leave Nashville um, and an hour before you're going to leave, they tell you where you're going. So for me, it was like wow. Pipestone, Minnesota. 
So I said, okay. Yeah. So we didn't know anybody, didn't really have any money. So you just go there and you literally, you arrive and you start knocking on doors and saying, hey, I'm a college student. I'm going to be working 80 hours a week and I need a place to live. Would you rent me a spot in your basement, your attic, or do you know anybody else who would? So you start selling from day one. And then that that's just, that's how the summer goes, man. And, but 100% commission and they pay a very high commission rate. So you can make a lot of money and learn some good life lessons. So it's good stuff. Well. I, I tell you what, Ross, I use that door-to-door -door example with, uh, in a lot of our management training academies because, to your point, we're, Tony and I are always trying to get the people who are in our classes to understand the value of a door swing. What does it mean, whether it's virtual or live, when someone comes to your retail space and walks in your door, and how valuable is that customer? And they're like, oh, well, they're just looking. And I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> when you're knocking on a door and you're trying to get someone to let you in their house – that's somebody who might be just looking at the point where they're coming to you the complete other direction. That is a, an extremely valuable proposition. And as your retail side of the business expands, I'm sure you're having these conversations with some of your dealers out there. But you got to know my big takeaway was you went to University of Florida. The dean asked you to leave. So you started yeah. washing dishes and became a door to door salesperson. That's my that's what I wrote down. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was the same thing. I, I, I think I think you could hear from a million people that. A lot of us took a break away from school. I've never heard anybody say I was I was asked to step away from school like you were like you were asked to go be a Rhodes Scholar or something. So that's a really great way to spend that. That was awesome. I got that too. That's that's great. So listen, let's get into this, Ross. Um, your your official title over there at Club Car is Vice President, General Manager. Correct. That is correct. Yes. Okay. So so most people think of golf carts or you know they're mainly sold in bulk to golf courses. Can you shed some light on the retail side of Club Car's business model for us? Yeah, for sure. I mean, let me tell you a story. Uh, I think that's probably a better way to do it. There's a buddy I have, I've kind of just met him through some customer research and have kept in touch with him over the last couple of years. Um, his name's Frank. He lives in Peachtree City. So if you've never been to Peachtree City, there's three or four golf courses. But what's more amazing, it's just south of Atlanta, is there's 35,000 golf cars running around. So in that neighborhood, there's like 20% of the people using them for golf, but you know, the remainder are just driving them around as an alternative to their car. Frank has a big corporate job. He's gone all week. When he gets home on Friday afternoon, he told me he hangs his keys up and then he plans his weekend around how he's going to use his onward, his golf car. So he gets in that thing and he and his wife go cruise down to like the village green. They hang out with their friends, they have a glass of wine, come back. Saturdays, he plays around to golf. Saturday afternoon, he hangs with his son. They go watch football. I can't remember whose college football team is, but uh, some something like a Big Ten team, so it doesn't really matter. And uh, he, <laughs> like, uh, literally, Tony and, and Sam, plans his weekend around how he's going to use it. On Sunday, they use it to go to church. Sunday afternoon, they just go chill out. You know, He might schedule a haircut on the other side of Peachtree City just so he has an excuse to drive his golf cart over there. Um, it's, it's really like a, a lifestyle choice. It's more like a, a pedestrian experience and automotive experience. So I think people vastly prefer that to like hopping in their SUV again to drive like one mile. When you're explaining this, I think of my mother-in-law, Ross, she lives out in Arizona. Both my mother-in-laws live out in Arizona, but this area that she's around is sun city. Oh, right. Yeah. And so, so I never knew. I didn't understand this, but once I once I got there, blew my mind was the fact that Sun City is a city within Phoenix that is all retirees and that is their mode of transportation. To your point, they put their car in their driveway uh, or in their garage and they don't ever take it out. They go to the grocery store, which is contained inside of Sun City. They go to the bars, they go to the golf courses. And you're right, like the golf cart is it's a lifestyle. It's not just this white little thing that goes back and forth uh, to and forth uh, to the, to the golf course. So to your point, fascinating to me, man. Yeah. It's Sun city is a huge market. And if you think about, um, you know, that those folks, they've spent their whole life probably commuting and, and working hard. And now they're enjoying the fruits of their labor in their retirement lifestyle. And to them, they're like, the last thing they want to do is get in a car and drive around. You know, they're, they're looking for ways to relax and have fun. What's cool. Yeah. And we've really seen it uh, through the past through month, few months through the um, pandemic has been that families are now beginning to adopt this mode 
Um, and we, we really believe because of that, that we're creating like a new micro mobility segment. It's got all the like same kind of characteristics of reduced congestion, parking, traffic, all the environmental benefits. And that's really translating over to families with kids who see this as a safe alternative that follows social distance, distancing guidelines and allows them to spend time with their family outdoors. So the market is like growing. Most of our market has been boomers, um, you know, up until now who are kind of like the Sun City or Peachtree City or Villages folks. But now it's really starting to stretch. And, and here's the cool thing. There's like uh, 44 million homes in the U.S. that are owner-occupied by people between like 25 and 75. And those 44 million homes are all located within one or two miles of amenities that people can drive and onward to or a golf car. So you start thinking about that. It's giant. And then we use our like product management, standard work, and, and uh, analytics to drill that down and it ends up becoming this giant market opportunity. So we see it as like a, an alternative to the way people will get around in the future. And uh, it's going to expand beyond just those retirement communities like where your mother-in-law lives. So it's really it's an exciting time to be in a business. Yeah, that's that's perfect. That micromobility is huge. Um, uh, the, the electric bicycle conversation in our industry has just been a, a key topic now for a long time. Triumph literally just yesterday at the time of this filming, Triumph came out with their electric bicycle as well. Um, and, and that makes me think about you guys have been playing in the electric space for a lot longer than our power sport traditional power sport players have. So whereas they may be able to come to the table with a UTV that does all the things people want to do to go off road. And I know it's probably not a fair comparison. You on the drivetrain side of the fence are probably leaps and bounds ahead of them. And that kind of rolls me into my next question, which is that onward came out. If I'm correct, you said 2017, you got four wheel drive capability on that. You've got some lift kits on these things. It's almost like we're trying to take a UTV or utilitarian vehicle and, and drop it on that golf cart plat car, golf car platform. Why do you guys call them cars? There's a question for the UF alumni out there. Why do you call them golf cars instead of golf carts, first of all? It's because it's different. Like the cart is just this homogenous kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like just standard looking vehicle. The fleet all looks the same. It's commodity, right? And it's by, by design supposed to look exactly the same and match a design uh, theory for the course. 80% of the people who buy our, our cars are cars, yeah. are personalizing them. They're accessorizing them. They're, they're like making them match their own unique style preference. So it could be new seats, wheels, paint even, um, you know, and although maybe like 40% of them, 25%, something like that are going to use them for golf, they still want that unique flair, that unique uh, look that represents who they are. And that happens a- in Sun City or anywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's a, it transcends age for sure. That's a that's a great answer. Tony and I have a mutual f- friend who spends a, a couple months during the summer in Aspen. And if you've been to Aspen, Colorado, uh, or you've seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, <laughs> people take these these golf cars to your point and they deck them out, whether they're yes. diamond encrusted, maybe not in Sun City, but more Aspen, but lift kits and Humvee kits on top of them. And it's pretty crazy. OK, back to my question. Sorry for the squirrel tangent on you there. My question would be, is your goal to compete and go head to head in that UTV market in the power sports space or with your creation of the onward? Is this its own is I mean, you you guys have an acronym PTV, personal transport vehicle. Is that your own thing that you're doing independent of all manufacturers? Well, PTV is almost like an engineering name um, because it defines the characteristics that are required to meet a standard a national standard that the industry follows to ensure uh, safety, reliability, and manufacturing processes and performance capability, or um, it defines the performance requirements for the vehicle. So that's PTV and the American National Standards Institute defines that. So all the major manufacturers follow that. And in terms of like UTV, it's it's really just a different, completely different application. And, you know, I drive an onward around my neighborhood and I had to do some work with the town board to get, you know, legislation shifted so that I could do that legally and stuff. But now that I do that, I get stopped like 
eight out of 10 times by people who wave me down, like run in front of me, wave me down. They're like, whoa, how do I do? Where do I get one of these? Am I allowed to use this? I live over in that neighborhood. Can I drive it into town too? So it's, it's a different, it's just a different application. I think as I was saying before, it's just a, an alternative. It's more like taking a walk than it is like taking a drive. And that's really pleasant. It's a pleasant way to get away from like the craziness of our lives. You think about pre-COVID, you know, with you guys have kids and, you know, like every sporting activity, music, school, whatever, then your own stuff, you're trying to get out and get a mountain bike ride in. It's just, it's pretty hectic. This is a way to slow life down. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle and it's a different lifestyle than a UTV application for sure. Although both are really fun. You say that Ross and, and I, I totally agree with you. There is something super cool and nostalgic about not getting into a big old car and riding on a road these days. It's, it, it really is. And, you know, um, the offer was put out to get Sam and myself one of these machines. And I, I can't do it in Steamboat. They're not allowed on. They're not legally allowed on the street. So there's nowhere I could participate. But Sam got his. And I looked at that thing and I was just like. I think it's badass. Like it's super cool. I would love to put my little dudes in that thing and go cruise around, go to dinner. I don't know, just go around and show their friends. I can't legally do it, but I was looking at thing a little bit jealous that Sam had that thing for him and Abby to go play around in, you know? <laughs> well, sh- shameless plug for you guys. Amanda had asked me to get online and go through the configurator that's on the club car website. Like if you were going to build your own, uh, she wanted to know the ease of the configurator, to which it was extremely easy for me to go, okay, I want those cool wheels. I want that jacked up lift kit. I want the premium leather seats. I got to have the Bluetooth speakers on the top. And I'm clicking all these buttons and I'm building this thing. And I send the, I, I hit submit and I sent it to Amanda. And I'm like, yeah, that was, that was easy. That thing worked really well. Next thing you know, I get a call from uh, the local shop here in Colorado, and they're like, "Hey, we have your we have your car. We want to deliver it to you." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> so, uh, yes, I do have one in the garage as a demo, and it is cool. And um, teaching my daughter how to drive it right now, actually. So, you're jealous, <laughs> Tony. I know you can come visit. So you like you like the configurator, and that was a, a good good purchasing experience. Lo- loved it, and the, and the rear, you know, you can you can have all kinds of those. Uh, uh, adaptations on the back end of it to have a a four-seater or it flips upside down into a cargo hold which has a cooler inside the cargo hold which is a bonus for everybody or you can put golf clubs on the back of it and just like all the different options you can do with the full rain kit that goes around the side of it and it's it's really neat and everybody who's come to visit my daughter's having some play dates these days and all the parents come in they're like what the heck is that and where do i get one so to your point it's causing a lot of commotion out here in uh southwest part of denver sam loved sam loved the 2020 uh, unicorn edition where he could put yellow moons pink diamonds (laughs) purple hearts on it and yeah, the spinners yes. on the wheels. So. We, we sparkled it out. Yeah, I had my daughter help me with that. We sparkled it out. So, Ross, um, Garage Composites does a ton of work with with different OEMs in, in many spaces. And we always like to ask this question when we get somebody like you on the line is, should the OEM focus on pushing best uh, retail practices or just simply make good product and let the dealers worry about the retail side of the fence? What's What's your belief on that? I think it's a partnership for sure, you know. Let me give you an example, like the, the configurator Sam just referred to, that's like the, the foundation of our digital playbook. So, you know, we're constantly trying to drive people towards configuring cars because we know that um, the conversion rate is really high when someone goes through a complete conversion and submits and actually selects a dealer. So when we get one of those leads, we want it, they're like solid gold. We have a high conversion rate. So we want our dealers to follow up on those like within minutes, hours, and definitely within the first day. Uh, we did, you know, ransom analytics, and we know that if there's a follow up within 24 hours, we're two and a half times more likely to make a sale. And after that, it just falls off, and it's it's almost meaningless. So that's a example of a partnership. We're building that platform that converts at a high rate. Then our dealers work the conversion process by following up and closing the sale. So we even go farther. We've, we've moved that metric, Sam, since we met you um, back in Augusta from a point where about less than half of our leads were getting followed up on in the first day. 
So less than half. So 50% of those door swings, we were just like ignoring, it, it seemed like, as, as a partnership between us and our dealers. So we put a bunch of work into it. We fixed some of our tools and Salesforce, um, started making the measurements really transparent and sharing those with our dealers and started sharing best practices. And I'm happy to say like last week, we're at like 85% of leads are followed up on within the first day. So I see that as Tony is the way the partnership works for sure. Yeah. Well, and the key word you mentioned there is tools. Tony, you and I know some manufacturers that don't just have tools. They shove them down dealers' throats, and we choose not to play with those manufacturers. But to to have available the toolkit for your dealers to then let them use, and to the point, highlight the deficiencies during that dealer show. And I don't mean that in a thumb on your, uh, you know, on the open wound kind of thing. I mean that in a, hey, man, we're not getting back to people in the 50% of the time with this lead coming in within one day. And if we did, here is the result for the dealers who are doing it. And now you've got that thing up to 85%. So I, I think one of my major takeaways from your dealer conference was all of your executive team, they were in alignment. They were in alignment with the goal. They were in alignment with what was our plan. What did we tell you we were going to do? Here's what we did. I told you before your commitment to understanding supply chain and building that up and being fully transparent with the dealers was awesome. I love that. I think using those tools on the retail side to give to the dealers is uh, was critical. It it begs my next question, which is what what do you got? If you've got some secret sauce over there at Club Car, what do you think it is? Because again, your team is in alignment. You're fully transparent. The dealers I talked to at that convention were on board with where you're going and what you're doing. You have this new vehicle the onward, which is taking your retail sales. Correct me if I'm wrong. Your retail sales are exceeding your wholesale sales at this point through the through the golf courses. Did I get that piece right? Uh, you know, without exposing anything specific, not quite, not quite. Okay. But it's it's a different, um, definitely a different uh, gross margin um, opportunity. Okay. It's you know the retail business is um, new and it's definitely uh, at the early stages of the product life cycle. So, you know, we're enjoying the benefits of growth and increasing profitability at the same time. It has not yet eclipsed golf. Golf's, golf's a big, big business. And the reason we can be successful because ultimately it's, it's what absorbs all of our fixed cost base just through the sheer volume. So, so what do you think that is? If you're going to pin it down to, is it staffing? Is it retention? Is it your hiring practices? What, what do you, if, if there's some secret sauce to your growth, particularly recently, what, what can you attribute that to, Ross? I guess the, the easy answer is the culture. And the culture in Club Car is one of tremendous pride in the brand. People talk about the black and gold. And when I first got there, I was like, the black and gold? What, what is that? You know, and, and it took me a while to, to get that into my, my blood. But there's a, a really strong sense of pride in quality, um, reliability, um, and customer satisfaction that I haven't experienced in other companies. And I think it's because our manufacturing and most of our employees are all in one place. We have, we have manufacturing in, in China, um, but it's pretty small. So most of the staff that isn't you know remote is in one building, in one place, building one set of products. And that gives uh, that team the ability to... Um, you know, become cohesive in a way that other more fragmented businesses can't. So we can pull together when one customer is mad and fix it. You know, we can have a Friday afternoon meeting and say, hey, we lost a customer. What can we learn from this? And then we can go fix it. And we do that. And that's the level of value we place upon uh, the business relationships we have, whether it be retail or golf or commercial or whatever. So it's probably the, the, the quickest and clearest answer I can give you. Um, we also have, uh, you know, l- industry leading engineering uh, capability, and that comes from an engineering team that's drawn a lot of best practices from automotive, both from their previous experience and also from what they're learning day in and day out um, as, uh, you know, industry um, experts who are trying to grow. So the way we test our cars, the way we determine life cycle reliability is very, very similar to what's done in automotive. And that really sets us apart. And that look and feel on a showroom floor is unmistakable. So where we have a multi-line dealer and they have a side-by-side test drive uh, against Mm. our competition, we win like every time, even at a, a very large price premium. 
hey Ross, going back to the dealer OE relationship, what's the one thing dealers aren't considering when they point fingers at OEs? You know, Sam and I are, we have always preached and we always will preach. It is the cornerstone of our business model is that we are dealer advocates. Always will be. That won't change. Um, From your side of of life as uh, the guy that is at the helm of the company, what is the one thing they don't consider when when you get that phone call or that email? Yeah, I don't think of it that way. I don't I don't okay. think of it as finger pointing. And, and here's why I, I'm VP, right? I'm an executive. So I am about as far away from customers as it is possible to be. So, you know, I usually try to think about what is it I'm not considering or what is it I don't know? Um, so we have a dealer advisory council that helps to bridge that gap between the reality of the marketplace and what our our business aspirations are or maybe our business frustrations. Um, so that helps us understand each other's kind of challenges and needs better. Um, you know, we don't – I tell people, hey, I guarantee we're not going to get everything right, uh, but we're always going to strive to fix our mistakes quickly and to honor and respect the partnership that we have between our companies because – most of our dealers are, you know, just a, a husband and a wife running a business. And I really respect that small business ownership mindset, that entrepreneurship. And it's a different set of rules that they're living by in terms of cash flow, keeping their employees housed and fed. And I, um, you know, we treat that with great respect. And, and in doing so, we really, I know for me, I strive to understand what's really happening in the marketplace um, you know, before I tell them what they should be understanding, if that makes sense. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great answer. Wouldn't it be great if all OEMs thought that? <laughs> uh, I hey, mean, it's, so- it's easy though. You get caught up, you're like in, you know, wherever, whichever office you're in and whatever part of the country and you, you, you lose touch pretty quickly. You know, that's, I think it's, it's really important to get your, we call it going to the Gemba in lean and, you know, in our operational excellence, um, standard work. And, and it's literally going to where the work is done. So just standing on a showroom floor and watching the sales transaction or standing in a service shop and watching how a car gets repaired and understanding what that's like uh, firsthand is really, really important for OEMs, I think. And, and it's probably not typical at an executive level for that to happen. Whereas at club car it is. So we, we really challenge ourselves to do that so that we understand what the hell's going on. And we're not just like, you know, yelling from the mountaintop. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I, your previous answer about getting your executive team all together and coming up with the right solution to, to learn from it or execute that change. I think a piece that was missing was execute that change through the dealer, right? Bring the dealer in on the conversation. How do we help make that cut, make it right and help that customer and maybe win them back over. And you do, you made a key point on stage about spending time in the service department, in the service space and seeing what that's like. Um, Something that'll blow up a service department in a hurry is the part availability. Uh, We get back to the supply chain conversation. You guys front loaded a lot of effort. This is all pre-COVID here. You guys did a lot of front loading of effort to increase your supply chain visibility and ease of ordering. So two part question for you. Number one, did that make it easier for dealers, uh, make it less painful for dealers to get the product in the timeliness when they needed those cars on the floor? And then part two, did COVID blow all that up? Are you guys still in a very good position on the backside of COVID because of the work you did with supply chain on the front side? Yeah, well, there's a few things there. There's like the um, the kind of the ERP and order entry piece that is really driven in our business through a bunch of disparate systems that um, are different also from our peer businesses within Ingersoll RAN. So I think what we're trying to do is start with the end in mind and that end being what facilitates the dealer's ability to transact business uh, most easily and most effectively. Uh, and then backing into how do we make that work with, within the constraints of our systems or with new systems. That's what we do in club car. And that speaks to the culture. Other businesses I've been in or I've read about, it's the opposite. They're looking at more of a value stream, um, enhancement through a new ERP. And they think about the, the bottom line impact absent the end impact on the customer. So when an ERP gets implemented, you know, Oracle or SAP or whatever, it, it's, it's very 
complex. And there's definitely a blackout period where nothing's happening. And then there's a period of chaos where everything's turned on. And in, in the best case, that's like days and weeks of frustration. In the worst case, it's like a year of frustration. I've kind of lived through some of that and it's, it's awful. So we never want to do that for the sake of like improving our bottom line. Um, instead, we're going to improve our bottom line through helping the dealers, the channel, and ultimately the customers that are buying from them have a better experience from us. Um, so that kind of goes to your second question about supply chain. And, you know, we were really, uh, I'm really fortunate to be on the team I'm on and to be led by uh, Mark Wagner as well, who's our president uh, at, at Club Car. Let me tell you, I'm lucky that Mark Wagner uh, is our president and, and that my peers on the executive leadership team uh, at Club Car really saw the, the COVID and pandemic situation as a challenge to keep our dealers fed and our employees employed and fed. And, and we kind of started with that end in mind. We didn't want to like reduce force. We didn't want to cut costs. And we definitely didn't want to put our dealers in a situation where they had nothing to sell and no way to make money. Um, because that kind of domino effect is pretty scary. And, and if you think about it in the worst case, if we were to shut down completely and like furloughed our whole staff, our dealers would have been starving for inventory and had nothing to sell. So they're getting no revenue and more importantly, no cash flow to pay their staff with. And then it's just the ripple effect is really awful and scary. And you can read about it every day in the paper. Um, instead, we made the, the conscious decision to safeguard our employees. We sent everybody home who wasn't critical uh, to plant operations and kept the plant up. And we, we like built like a wall around the plant and so anybody who's coming in here is getting screened. Um, and by the way, nobody's coming in here except for the critical few that we need to make the cars. And that was weird for us because um, we're a very like social organization. Everybody being under one roof, it's more like a family than a business, but, but literally just locked it down. And that allowed us to stay open and it allowed us to keep our dealers supplied throughout the pandemic. Um, and then ultimately it's going to allow us to really help them succeed on the rebound because we're already positioned because our supply chains have been kept turned on to serve new higher demand. Now on the supply chain, it took some like really unique problem solving and a couple of examples, like one of our suppliers is a harness supplier that's based in Mexico was shut down by the government. So we literally worked with our legal team sourcing and uh, a legal representative and uh, the executive leadership team of that uh, supplier to get that supplier deemed as essential and get them reopened. So it really, you talk about partnership earlier, it, we didn't just throw our hands up and say, oh, we can't get that part anymore, or we didn't leave it in their hands to go solve. We, we got rolled our sleeves up and got our hands dirty with them and fixed it. Um, you know, same thing, we did that in India as well. Uh, where we helped um, suppliers both with uh, kind of the essential designation, but also with implementing best practices that we had from uh, Augusta, from our manufacturing facility, so that they could safeguard their employees. So, you know, those types of actions, and I could tell you stories all day. We do a podcast about that alone, just kind of maintaining the supply chain health um, throughout the pandemic um, has enabled us to have really, really um, come through this in a much better way than, than expected. And now on the rebound, it's going to help us take advantage of the opportunity uh, much more effectively. So huh. to, clar to clarify, you're at full capacity. You're not on a lag right now. No, we're f we never, never slowed down. Huh. Now, our, our order, our order mix changed somewhat. Some of our businesses were up, some were down, uh, but Overall, no. I mean, we're we're still kicking. We and I bring that up just because in our in our uh, twice monthly webinars with our dealers, we're having a big conversation about inventory because as far as new product, uh, particularly on the power sports side and in the marine side, they got a lot of people running out of new products, so they're scampering for the used and pre-owned stuff. But it's great to know their manufacturers that are still at one hundred percent capacity. So props on you for that. Props to Mark and the team. Yeah. And we're still, we're still on that lockdown. Our employees are still safeguarded. We're still all the like disinfectant, um, fogging, screening, limiting who goes in and out of the plant, all that's still in place because we don't want to, um, you know, lose sight of the risk that's still present. 
Real quick, Tony, I know you got another yeah. question teed up, but I just want to – when we did the uh, – after the main session of the dealer conference, we went over to the factory to do some breakout sessions. And, of course, I was all geeked out by the training room because it's awesome and IT and giant screens everywhere. But then you open the door and you look at what's behind the door in the warehouse. What is the square footage of that facility that where we were? You oh, remember? Can you, you would ask at me. It? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for half a million. Let me wow. let me let me fact check that, and I'll email it to you. But I'm pretty sure it's half a million. It's yeah, it, huge. it was unbelievable. Like a picture did no justice to it. It's like taking a picture of a sunset. Like you can't process that. I tried to send some pictures to the team, and it was just. You know, the, the fact that the, the organization that has to happen and, again, the supply chain conversation that I keep beating the drum on, you guys clearly have that dialed in. And uh, it was just really, really impressive. So now to hear that you put a wall around it and you're only letting people in who needed to be there, that's I can only imagine what that looks like right now. It's pretty crazy to think about and visualize. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny story. When that thing was being built, we were out there and it was empty. It's just, you know, just this giant empty slab with a roof. and I took a picture of a guy at the far end and, and just the way the aspect ratio looks, it looks like the guy's like a mile away. He's like an inch tall. It's hilarious. So yeah, it's really big. But, but what's um, interesting about that is, you know, think of how large that is, but the way that we use technology uh, to, to make it small um, and control all of that inventory so that we're able to, um, feed the line at the main plant is it's uh, it's exceptional and and some of that is done with some pretty rudimentary rudimentary systems so uh, that's um, that's something we're very proud of spotless as well yeah spotless yeah good stuff hey, hey, hey Ross we we deal in in power sports uh, marine industry RV industry and the the bicycle industry. We, we've said for a long time that, you know, like the power sports industry seems to be five years behind the auto industry and the trends that they're following and the things that they're doing within their four walls. Where do you put gold car industry uh, on that scale? Where, where do you guys see yourselves relative to power sports, auto, marine, um, if you have a pulse on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I don't I don't think of us as like like me too um, and following in the footsteps of like automotive. Um, but I would say like the, having an F and I office um, and a, you know, uh, a very, very um, similar retail feel regardless of where you are in the country. That's, that's something that we should, that we would aspire to have uh, more of like, if you know, you go into a Lexus dealership, it's going to feel the same, whether you're in uh, steamboat or Jacksonville or, uh, you know, New York city or, or New York rather, but, um, you know, that's a tough one, Tony. I think there's just, there's some nuances to this business and, and it's probably a maturity path that we're on. Um, given that most of our distribution when we launched and most of our dealers were kind of the legacy golf industrial distributors. So over the past three years, we've made a tremendous effort to expand that channel and the coverage, uh, and retail capability of that channel, uh, so, I mean, when you think of it that way, yeah, we're probably more than five years behind, uh, automotive. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it totally does. And, and, you know, where I was going Ross and, and forgive me probably for a, a little bit of daydreaming here with this and, and thinking ahead is, you know, based off the conversation of where you see the industry going and we see these little microcosms within cities of golf golf cart gold car using uh vehicles i saw the 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 template to go build your own club car right and then i saw the uh, the effect that it had on sam and his daughter it just seems to me that it would be supernatural in the future where you would have your your standalone point right where you had your service and your parts and your you could go you could go to a parts and accessories department where you could just bling this thing out like mad and you'd have your F&I office. So, I mean, it, it just seems like it seems to me that we're heading in a direction that goes that way. Smaller boutique stores. We see that in the motorcycle industry where you don't have to have a behemoth 30,000 square foot dealership for something like like what we're talking about with that. So that's that's where I was going with that question. But, yeah, great answer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds about right. You know, so we came from that that legacy industrial kind of warehouse where people would go mm -hmm. to buy a fleet or they'd buy like a utility vehicle. 
Um, and we've grown a retail experience and, you know, we have like an accessory wall and we have all of the supporting, um, cooperative marketing programs. And, you know, we manage all of that really, really well. Um, you know, in, in sync with our digital marketing playbook, uh, you know, and that, that's, but it's a maturity path, I think. So five years behind. Yeah, that's probably fair. Got so, you. Let me, Ross, let me jump back to your powertrain. Um, and that's a, kind of a, another two-part question here. I alluded to it earlier when I was talking about the comparison between uh, your Onward and the UTV market on the power sports base. And I get that that's not a fair comparison as far as usage goes. But my comment was that you got a lot of players in the power sports industry that are very good at building um, the functionality of the vehicle and then the fit and finish and, and almost all of them driven uh, by gasoline or diesel or something along those lines. You guys have been playing in the battery-operated space for some time now. Do you think that gives you a leg up in the power sports industry or in comparison micro-mobility industry? How about that? And then as far as moving forward, what percent of the business is it? Are you guys moving away from gas-powered carts um, completely, 50-50? What, what does that look like on the consumer side of the fence? Well, certainly there's a couple of things at play. Um, there's, there's the technology that enables a maintenance free or, or less maintenance than, uh, you know, an internal combustion engine that's attractive to consumers. So specifically with a lithium powertrain, you know, that's, that's maintenance free ultimately. Um, you know, the challenge with lithium is, is cost versus range and trying to, you know, get ahead of that curve as much as we can in, in the future, it's going to be, you know, much better as lithium comes down and continues to drop and we can get more and more out of those batteries to go farther and farther. Um, you know, that would be kind of the, the thing that consumers are most attracted to right now, I would say in our space is the, the technology and maintenance free aspects. So your mother-in-law, Tony out in Sun City, she's probably got flood lead acid batteries, which require maintenance. And if she's like most, um, you know, golf car owners, they're not doing that maintenance. So the battery life is limited. The performance degrades over time. Uh, whereas these newer technologies like a lithium battery, um, with an AC drive instead of the traditional DC drive, where you're just going to get much, you're going to get speed and torque. Um, it's, it's a much more exciting ride with, you know, no maintenance. So that's a big deal to consumers and something that we're definitely seeing um, the market shift towards and also that we're shifting our focus towards for sure. Um, yeah, I think, what else did you ask me? I forgot the second part of your question. Well, does it give you a leg up because you've been playing in that battery space for probably a lot longer than a lot of power sport competitors out there? It, it certainly does. Um, we made the call to go for uh, better technology and not just lower cost. Um, and I'll, I'll stick with the lithium and AC drive uh, powertrain um, by uh, using a pack instead of cells, by using, um, you know, an automotive style chemistry um, instead of like a power tool type chemistry. Um, and also by designing a very robust steel enclosure to protect um, the vehicle and to uh, house the lithium packs um, that combined with some really cutting edge technology um, in terms of both the vehicle control unit and the battery management system, um, you know, make these golf cars into very technologically advanced vehicles. And, you know, we're at the, we're at the infancy of that. We're a couple of years into that. So five years from now, it's hard to even imagine you know, how that is all going to work. And you think about integrating that with, you know, your IOT and everything else, it's going to be um, a completely different landscape. And I'm, I'm really excited to be part of that and developing that because it's, it's going to transform the way people get around for sure. Um, range anxiety is probably the biggest thing, biggest inhibitor right now. And I think that's, that's slowly going away. Well, and I think uh, education and awareness is probably a big component to that as well. When Tony and I were in California last week riding on those live wire, that's Harley Davidson's fully electric motorcycle. I think we both got on it thinking, well, we'll see what this is all about because we're, we're both grabbing for the clutch lever that isn't there. Right? And we're trying to shift with our left foot on a, on, a, on a shifter that isn't there. But then we both ripped it through the turns for 50, 60 miles. And it was it was really impressive. Um, when I get in the car with my daughter and we go zipping around the neighborhood, that thing is fast. 
that thing is fast right up until a point where it isn't, which is a governor conversation you and I should probably have offline. <laughs> but it's it's very impressive. And I think the more people that get exposed to it, whether it's through a car or a motorcycle or through these golf cars, are going are gonna to make that switch over there. So uh, when the range comes in line, I think you've got a very viable product and pretty cool for you. I got I to gotta believe coming from, you know, selling encyclopedias in-house to being part of a technology conversation with where micro mobility is going. Pretty neat thing. So, yeah, it's 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 pretty fun fun to be part of. Ross Atherton, that was super cool, man. I I can't thank you enough for spending a little bit of time with us and kind of shedding some light on what's going to come down the pipe in the future. Um, I know you're a really busy man and you need to get back to work uh, and stop talking to these two goons on a on a podcast. But can't thank you enough for joining us. Any parting words for our people out there listening? No, I would just say I appreciate the time and, uh, you know, Sam, Tony, keep up, keep up the good fight. I think, um, you know, we have a meeting with our dealer advisory council. We're asking about door swings and people following up on leads. And, and it was interesting because one of the dealers said, man, I don't get it. I, I, I call customers back within an hour when I know they want to buy something. And, you know, a couple of the other folks kind of perked up and they were like, yeah, but what about, you know, what about, you know, doing this or your service or keeping up with the other parts of your business? And, and this guy, I think he's actually a guy out your way in Colorado. He said, none of that matters if I don't sell something. So I love your orientation towards sales. And uh, I think that's a really good thing for the industry and appreciate you guys doing that and kind of spreading the gospel of of what that means, um, in terms of, uh, you know, the independent dealers, uh, success. So cool stuff. And, and also thanks for bridging that, uh, with the OEMs, because I think that's a really important element too. So thanks. Thank you for, yeah, thank uh, you. thank you for having me at the dealer show. And, uh, hopefully this partnership continues. We really appreciate it, Ross. Oh, I got one more thing. Sure. Don't say Go, it. Ga- Go Gators. Uh, <laughs> And with that, this has been episode number 27 with Ross Atherton, the VPGM over at Club Car. If you want more information on us, you can go to www.garagecomposites.com. You can listen to us at your favorite place to listen to podcasts, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thank you guys for paying attention. Thank you for listening. For Sam Dantzler, I'm Tony Gonzalez, and we are out of here. Thank you, everybody.